HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is supported by Angry Orchard. HRN is teaming up with them to host a virtual event all about American cider. Check it out at heritageradionetwork.org cider. This episode is brought to you by Honeycomb Credit. Heritage Radio Network listeners can learn more about the power of community capital by visiting honeycombcredit.com HRN. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. We're recording remotely. It's Tuesday, May 4th, 2021. And we're in that time of year where everything is changing. Life is coming back to normal for some people and spring's here. And it's also going to be Cider Week in New York, which is kind of the perfect timing because I built my whole spring around the release of American Cider, Modern Guide to Historic Beverage, uh, by Craig Cavallo and Dan Pucci. And uh, that's what our show's about today. On May 26, we're going to be doing a, a live virtual event with Heritage Radio Network. And uh, there'll be some other events going on for Cider Week as well. So perfect timing, guys. Uh, let's introduce the guests. Uh, Craig? Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, this is Craig Cavallo, one half of American Cider with Dan Pucci. And I am uh, coming to you from up in the Hudson Valley, a little town called Clinton outside of Rhinebeck, uh, where my wife and I run the Golden Russet Cafe and Grocery as uh, my main hustle, apart from scribbling words on paper. That's one place I definitely want to go, the the Golden Russet. Uh, Eleanor? Hi, I'm Eleanor Lejay. I am Eden Specialty Ciders up in northern Vermont, and uh Longtime fan of Dan Pucci and Craig, and so excited about this book, American Cider. Thank you, Eleanor. And Dan? Yeah, my name is Dan Pucci. Uh, I am, Craig said, the co author of American Cider. Um, and I'm also a co owner of Walba Hospitality, which is a consulting company for the hospitality industry. And I'm also up in Hudson Valley in a town called Red Hook. And you're a pommelier, too, one of our top cider guys <laughs> in America. Thank you. And David, our southerner. Uh, yeah, this is David Thornton. I'm uh, excited to be calling in from Southern Pines, North Carolina, uh, where my wife and I keep two orchards uh, of apples and peaches, and we are the cider makers for the James Creek Cider House. Okay, so uh, Dan and Craig, so the, one of the most exciting things that's happened in the year, not just in the world of cider, but this year, is the launch of your book, American Cider. 
And I'm just thrilled to have you guys on the show and all these different events that are going on. Um, when you guys first started working on this, um, first of all, how did you guys decide to work together and a little bit of the back process on this book? Because this is an exhaustive book. Like when I was younger in the restaurant industry, I would check on things. I wanted to learn about wine. So every night I'd, I'd taste wine. I'd go home and look at either a Hugh Johnson book or LaRusse Encyclopedia of Wine. And for the first time, this is a book that's like that. Like you, you're, you're tackling regions and, and terroirs and things in a way that no one's done yet for wine. Now, I might be wrong, but why don't you guys just tell me how, how you came together with this book? You know, you could have done a lot of different books, but this is a very special book. So uh, we've been, I've been working in cider for a number of years now and, and had this idea in the back of my brain. And then it actually kind of fell into her lap, this project. Um, where the uh, editor of the book, uh, Emily, had had, uh, had actually had the idea to like do a cider book. She wanted to do some kind of cider project, uh, and then her her friend, I mean her college roommate, Irene Hussey, is the owner of Wayside Cider, which is in my hometown of Delhi, New York, up in the Catskill Mountains. Uh, and I had actually a few months beforehand helped Irene open a, a restaurant and tasting room up in her in, in, in her home, um, and we I'd known Irene forever. Like we used to play like middle, soccer, middle school soccer together and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and she put us in touch with her with, with her college roommate who had this who wanted to do a book. I'm like, okay, great. And I kind of said, I went, I went for the moon, saying like all the other books prior to this have been kind of more either um, self-exploratory or more fermentation process driven um, and less about like um, actually like consumer side of things and actually like approaching it like you were saying, Jimmy saying earlier, like I think back to like Craig and I first met working at, at Italy's wine store back in 2010. And like part of that job was like, was like reading like Jimmy reading these like wine books. Uh, and so I think looking at those books kind of really influenced kind of structure for, my, for this book um so it kind of came together like that and i pictured this idea of like hey we want to do the cider book but it's not going to be like a fluffy cider book it's going to be kind of this like uh pretty real in-depth nerdy but accessible history and guidebook for consumers and for people and for everybody and she loved it and that's kind of how it was born and then i started working on this project and realized that i was in way over my head and that I uh, needed, we, we needed, this isn't going to happen with just, my, just myself. So I've known Craig for a decade or uh, more and, and reached out to him saying like, hey, I really could use some help on this. And he's like, I, it was great and kind of perfect timing in his part, his projects. And it worked out perfectly. We turned the book in, our first draft, we turned the book in on a Monday. Craig opened his restaurant here the Friday beforehand. And I had uh, my daughter like six days later. So it kind of all worked out time-wise. <laughs> So you you birthed a lot of things in in that time. There's like a two week period of insanity. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And so Craig, you know what what did you learn working on this book? Because I mean, obviously, you liked cider, you knew something about it, but I'm sure there's things that you learned researching or writing this book. Yeah, yeah, big time. And I owe I owe Dan a debt of gratitude just for uh, everything that I did learn in this, and for him asking me to join him. I didn't. Uh, I said yes from a friend standpoint, um, and and you know I kind of just peripherally I sort of had this interest in cider from Dan and his work at 
the since closed Wasail restaurant on Orchard Street, um, which really I think expanded Dan's brain and kind of got him understanding cider and got him really close to to kind of what was happening. But uh, so yeah, to that end, when when he asked me to join him. Uh, I was really a blank canvas and we just started diving really deep. Uh, Dan's a good coach and guide and, and we, we found some resources and just, I mean, everything in the book are all, you know, it's all things that I learned along the way in the research and the writing process. And, you know, it was all new to me and that's kind of, you know, like, like folks on the call and, and those listening and whoever's kind of close to apples and orchards and cider, uh, you kind of you know, you get a bug and it's hard to describe that sensation and feeling and passion. But once you have it, it, it uh, tends to stick around. And that's that's kind of, I guess, why. Uh, yeah, I get, you know, in doing no, the project. It, it, it's and, great. And it's American Cider. And it's definitely things you got to read in the book. But we're going to talk to our other guests as well and really get a sh- you, thank you for picking. You picked Eleanor from Vermont and David from North Carolina. So we've got two distinct regions. So Eleanor, just tell us, we know about you, Eden Cider, one of my favorite cider guests. I love you. Um, what, what, tell us a little bit about your little region in, in Vermont. And do you think that region matters to your cider? Yeah. So um, we have a really interesting history in Vermont where, you know, we're a tiny state, but we're very agricultural. And we're the home of woodchuck, which was like all you could find in the way of cider up until like 2010. Um, and so um, we have every different type of of cidery at, operating here. I think, and I think we have more cideries per capita than any other state. So um, there's a lot of variety, a lot of different approaches, and uh, it's uh, super fun and interesting. And everybody's very collegial. Um, as far as terroir, sort of place-based driven things, there are a couple of interesting things going on. One is um, the climate that we're in allows us to make ice cider, which is how Eden got started back in 2007, which is like a, uh, more of a, um, like an ice wine, a sweet dessert wine style of cider um, that uh, if you're making it as it should be made, it's, you know, lots of interesting apple varieties and lots of really cold weather. Um, and then I think the, the other thing is, um, just the history, the fact that we've had cider making here for so long just, um, means that there, there's a good appreciation for cider among people who live in Vermont and, um, an appreciation for its agricultural roots. Um, and then, you know, the last thing would be just sort of the, the apple varieties, right? So, um, 80% 80% of the commercial crop here in Vermont is Macintosh, which is a great North, it's actually a Canadian variety. Um, and it's our historical strength and has you know, become sort of a commercial weakness at this point because it doesn't store as well as, um, you know, other things like Red Delicious and it doesn't have the texture after storage that, uh, uh, or originally that uh, something like a Honeycrisp does. But it's got incredible aromatics. And if you press it, if you leave it on the tree long enough and you press it at harvest instead of four or five months later out of cold storage, it's got some great aromatics for cider. So, um, you know, that's a that's an input that's, um, you know, pretty specific and, and unique to ciders from this, this region. That's great. And now let's go to David. So, David, just tell us a little about your region. Before I, I read the book American Cider... I didn't even know that there were any cider makers in North Carolina. Uh, there are a growing number of cider makers in North Carolina, but I'm, I'm not sure that our cider culture here 
historically was as well-developed perhaps as it, as it was in Vermont. What we do know is that there were quite a few subsistence farms and a lot of, North Carolina is a huge producer of commercial apples, uh, but they tend to be dessert apples. But many of the subsistence farms had very distinctive uh, old apple varieties that would often get uh, get passed down through families via cuttings and out to broader families and sometimes would proliferate in a, in a given region. And what we found as my my wife and I began to become enamored of, of all these different old uh, heirloom apples, uh, we had an inkling about 15 years ago that these might make some pretty interesting hard cider. And I think we're finding that that's true. Uh, so... Unfortunately, it leads to a, a growing collection of uh, cider varieties and, and dual-purpose apples in our orchard. So I keep wanting to plant more trees, uh, which is a liability if you if you run out of land. So, uh, but yes, we, we there have been a number of cider makers uh, who who came before us that we weren't really aware of. And it's funny that Eleanor mentions uh, woodchuck. I remember my wife and I drinking, you know, we would drink whatever cider we could get a hold of. And sometimes it was woodchuck and we were looking at each other going, hey, don't, don't you think if, if we planted some apple trees, we could make a good hard cider? I think that'd be, how hard could it be? And <laughs> it turns out that it's a lot more challenging than we thought, <laughs> uh, but a lot of fun. That's great. And and Dan, what, what was it like for you? You know, did you, were you already familiar with these regions? Um, and how did you define the regions? Let's go back to the process of, of the book and your own like personal cider journey. Yeah. I was, a, I had known people around the country who were engaged making cider uh, and kind of through that community through cider, cider con and other different things. And I think digging through, our, digging through the history, we were able to help define and create some regions. Uh, Cause in the book, we kind of look at the book, the region, the country through the historical lens. Uh, and we kind of, look at like each part of the country through a certain period of time. So like in the Southeast, we specifically look at like early colonization of the South Southeast from basically like European arrival until the revolutionary war. And like, and then we build that history out and then we kind of reflect the um, contemporary what's happening today against that, that past history. Like David was saying, the the kind of division between these like, large commercial entities and these small commercial small independent subsistence farms was, was like a major theme of our historical section for the southeast section and from that we kind of lifted that and talking about what's happening there today between that the Dutch position of, of those larger commercial entities and those who are making you know dessert variety who are growing dessert varieties place like Hendersonville uh, versus some of the more um, smaller scale farms that exist in the mountains or over where David is in Sandhills, that are um, that are growing more unique varieties with more cider specific. So that 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 thing that was existing 300 years ago is st- we're still being played out today in the varieties and things being grown there as well. So from that history, we were able to kind of grow up and 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 figure out our regions. Um, our, our drawing lines is really hard though. Like figuring out where to draw lines is challenging, and I, and I think we we did an okay job. There's there's definitely like I was like, I like one week before we turned the final copy and I wanted to blow up the entire book by like redoing the entire Midwest section and Craig talked me off that, Craig talked me off that ledge. Um, and if we do it again, I definitely want to redo that section. Um, but I think, look at, I think Craig, what do you, what do you say? Would you say that we look, I think the history was very important in terms of dividing the regions up. Yeah, for sure. And we kind of, 
I, I don't think we thought like, okay, there's going to be these eight regions. We just kind of looked at uh, across the country where apples and orcharding and cider have been historically present and where they remain present today. And so that, you know, we, the regions that, that we picked are kind of how we tried to put a bundle on, on this, you know, the, the large nation and its history of, of making cider and growing apples. Um, but yeah, to Dan's point, it's kind of hard to draw lines, but we just, we, we thought it would be beneficial if we did so just so it'd be easier to navigate. And like, we, we, we definitely drew like places out, like we have this, like being like our Dakota section is with the mountains, which is kind of weird. And like, we left out most of like Texas and like the Gulfs in like the Gulf and, um, like Arkansas was the largest grow of apples pre like 20th century west of the Mississippi, um, and we left it out because there's n- it's n- there's nothing happening there. There's nothing happening there today, cider wise at least. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, uh, you've mentioned like some places in Pueblo, Colorado. Yeah, maybe if you want to just mention a couple of the the ciders that are in the book. So who who's in that? Yeah, why is that part of Colorado interesting? For, for cider. Colorado is super interesting for cider because of its extreme places. Like the, the differences between like, I can think of th- th- three more extreme areas between like Eleanor or El- up Northeast Vermont, uh, North Carolina, the, the coastal North Carolina and, um, or like mid North Carolina and the mountains of Colorado. There are three incredibly different places in terms of growing conditions and the apple varieties that grow and the conditions in which those apples exist within and the challenges among those. So in Southwest Colorado, they have these, um, there was an existing apple industry there a hundred years ago that hasn't really been tapped into since then, but the trees are all, but they never really invested in either. So the trees are all still there. They're all fed by irrigation that comes off the water, that comes off the mountains every spring that keeps them alive without anyone keeping, keeping track of them. And there's like, and there's a pretty large, not large, but it's a relatively sizable, important nonprofit in the area called Montezuma, Montezuma Restoration Project that's able to like corral resources and people together. And it's about, it's a pretty remote part of the country. I think it's like, Craig, was it like six hours to the largest metro area from there? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no like commercial development with, with orcharding. It was all just kind of small scale things and apples rarely left. They were being trucked down to Texas and then crossing the border to Mexico uh, up until the oil embargo in the seventies when gas cost prices made that prohibitive. But yeah, the, the apples largely remain in the County and they're just at such high elevation, uh, and with such like, you know, hot, bright sun, uh, but also these very cold nights just develop really unique fruit. And, and, you know, it kind of went by the wayside into the eighties, nineties, there was a juice company, uh, that was kind of juicing some fruit, but they closed in the early two thousands. And now, uh, cider makers today are kind of trying to revitalize the the local economy. Montezuma County is one of the poorest in the state, and they're kind of trying to put money back by by bringing apples and, and making this value added product and kind of getting the community interested beyond those who might just drink cider. There's kind of a big push and effort uh, and an academic sense of like grafting and, and planting trees and just kind of coming to understand the history of the region. It's a very it's a dynamic part of the country. There's like uh, so ciders uh, or esoteric ciders and fence line and um, Clear Fork and uh, Teal Family. There's like four producers there, and it's a really s- small, remote part of the country. Um, so, and I think there are amazing differences between you know the ciders that that David makes and the ciders that Eleanor makes, all of which are really amazing. But just and you you couldn't we wouldn't drink them and say oh these are all very similar. They're like totally different. 
Do you think that people will, will take your book and go around the country and start visiting these places? Or I hope ordering ordering direct from the producers. I think there's a huge direct-to-consumer possibility. During COVID, people are totally willing to, to get things shipped from them directly. There, there was one thing that the, you, you brought up a lot of history and myth about the cider industry in America. And one thing I didn't know about, you talked about in the South, um, the impact of African slaves in the early days. It's hard to find a lot of great information. A lot of, you know, obviously the the white European culture is the dominant one and has been. And so that's sort of what we continue to learn about. But uh, th- there is, you know, research that's been done and some things that we came across that just kind of show that, um, you know, the, these people brought over and forced into labor kind of came with their own culture and know-how, obviously. And 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 a lot of that was put to use in uh, in agriculture is, is kind of one of the main pursuits. And a lot of times it was, uh, you know, the African slaves that sort of educated the the elite landowners on, on how to do things, whether that was uh, grow rice or, or cattle. cattle or uh, apples and ferment. And, and so it's something that we wanted to shed light on and just kind of kind of steer people away from the, the tired narrative around cider of colonial nostalgia and, and presidents that did this and presidents that did that and, and just p- try to provide a little bit more of an inclusive and truthful story about the product. Yeah, so who, who made the cider for Thomas Jefferson? There's a uh, Jupiter Evans is the guy's name. He was um, is, is like private valet butler slave um, for, yeah, who, who, made, who, who, made, who basically processed, made it, basically was in charge of that process. Um, but, and, and I think that there's, it's, it's a pretty, and we talk with the records we have are mostly for like the people who have, who have the money and the capital and the, and the, the big estates. And I think what Dave was saying earlier, this is just this in the South, the Southeast between these, like the culture that they developed in the plantations, which are things like Hughes crab and these like, um, Hughes crab comes from that culture and those, and those like centralized name varieties. But at the same time, there is this other culture of subsistence far of of poor people of, of poor people who were probably not who were not enslaved who did have a culture of cider making as well that grew a lot of these weird unique varieties we have, that we have today. So there's like there's like these two different untold histories of, of the southeast and cider making. David, do you have anything to add? Did I do that job? <laughs> No, Dan, I think I think you did that good justice. Yeah, I think the paths do diverge because uh, North Carolina and Virginia actually had a lot of small freeholdings that were fairly poor and of, of uh, humble means. And and these people could not afford uh, slaves. And, and actually, many of them were, frankly, abolitionists, especially in the in the foothills and in the mountains. Uh, so there were there were certainly pockets of abolitionism. So. So, yeah, I think they, they do diverge Their uh, Cider was a, a facet of, of plantation life. And I think that uh, Dan and Craig do, do great justice to this history. Uh, by by bringing this into the story of, of the ciders of the South, but also we have uh, a separate limb of the tree, if you will, that, that breaks off where where apples just flourish in varieties as families take cuttings and, and a seedling grows and they go, hey, that's pretty good. Let's keep that one, and they name it for somebody's farm, like Johnson's Keeper. You know what I mean? And and then all of a sudden you have you know there's one called Ofer for the for the for the mountains right here in the Uaris. Uh, so yeah, I think that's very well said, Dan. 
And, and David, just for you, so you're in the sand hills of North Carolina. What, what does that mean? Is that the soil? Yes. Yeah. It characterizes the soil, which is uh, classically, uh, I mean, <laughs> we like to say sandy loam, but but quite frankly, it's, it's sand, you, you know, with very little humic matter. Uh, unless you can enrich it or unless you're in certain pockets that are a little bit wetter or, you know, if you've run cattle on it. It's great terroir for growing peaches. It's great land for growing peaches. Uh, and actually, some apples, uh, many apples really are flourishing here. Uh, the, your first and most important step is to keep the deer off them. Uh, the, uh, because the deer really prefer them to peaches. <laughs> so, uh, it, but yeah, the, the question is, you know, what kind of apples will grow here and, and can we effectively grow, uh, an English or a French bitter sweet or a bitter sharp apple and have it be typey the way it would be in Vermont or in New, in, you know, upstate New York, or, uh, are, are we better off growing apples that have habituated to this area uh, by longstanding cultivation on these smaller farms? And that's where we come around to these heirloom fruits. Wow. Um, going back to regional, the, the, the reason I, I started talking about that, Dan and Craig, was at the beginning of the book, you, you said the first person you talked to was Diane Flint in Virginia. And the quote I have in the book, it says that, are there regional differences in cider or not? And I, I, is is there a answer to that question from the book? No, no. I th- I mean I think we set out, and and I won't necessarily speak for Dan, but I think we set out. At least I did anyway, thinking that we were going to find this vast array of differences, and we were going to try to come to almost use those as a way to show that despite the differences, that there's like similarities, and that everyone's kind of struggling with these differences. But I think what we found is uh, that while the differences may vary from region to region and based on resource and what people have uh, to their, uh, like what they have available to them, whether that's being close to say like Cornell in New York, or University of Minnesota, um, and can kind of feed off those resources. But everybody seems to be struggling really with this, this undervalued product and lack of resource. There's not a lot of money being poured into cider just because of this great uh, unknown thing. Um, there's not the correct fruit in the ground in abundance to make this uh, necessarily more compelling product. And the reason is, is a lot of money is tied up in bigger agriculture. So I think maybe the, the similarities uh, regionally kind of outshined for me, the differences that, that I thought were going to be more, more uh, spotlit, so to speak. That's very profound. Let's go to Eleanor. So Eleanor, just for another region. So you're, do you have family roots in, in that part of Vermont? I, I want to hear you get as hyper-local as you can. <laughs> so we're in an area that's called the Northeast You're probably Kingdom. probably Eleanor. Is, oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Here I am. Um, so we're, we're up in an area of Vermont called the Northeast Kingdom, which is the three counties in the top right corner up against uh, Quebec and New Hampshire. And my dad's family moved up there in the late 18th century. Um, and my great, great grandfather trained as a blacksmith in the town where our orchard is, and then went off to fight for the North in the civil war and came back and started making buggies before cars came along. Um, so there's, um, a lot of family roots. Um, I didn't grow up there, um, but, uh, certainly kept coming back. And then, um, we had an opportunity to, um, buy an abandoned dairy farm 
in the area and started planting weird and strange apple varieties and trying to make ice cider in our basement. And one thing led to another. So that's how we got here. So I mean, most of my time I spent in New York and with, with that cider community and Cider Week New York and everything. But, you know, talking to people in New England, is New England's cider culture distinctly different from New York? I mean, in the history and the apples and everything. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like Craig and Dan have done so much work on on sort of the the history of of cider making there in New England. I I mean, it's very much um, a a subsistence farming story. Um, you know, uh, you know, I think in contrast to some place like New Jersey, where there are some pretty pretty big producers of um, champagne method cider that supplied the champagne market in New York City. Um, it feels like uh, New England was just, um, you know, really an, ag- an agrarian economy. I, one fun fact that I love about Vermont is in 1815, there were 215 distilleries producing apple brandy, which I think basically meant that every farm had its own distillery, <laughs> its own still in the back. Well, that's a fun one. And then you wanted to mention just, again, just your little region, um, you wanted to mention a cider, the, the Brute Nature. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we're we're particularly uh, this this was the you know I mentioned we started out with ice cider and I I suppose I could have talked about ice cider but we're you know focusing on cider. Um, the first cider we produced was a um, this this champagne method totally dry um, cider that has fifty uh, percent by um, volume tannic um, cider variety apples in it um, and takes about two years to produce and it's just got wonderful um, texture and is great with all different kinds of food and um, is kind of our our flagship um, dry cider. That's great, Brute Nature. Um, we, I just wanted to get that first half of the, of the the show, I just wanted to get everyone talking a little bit and we could all get familiar with each other. We're going to take a short break. First, I, we have a new thing. It's our weekly beer haiku by, by at Awkward Haiku, Mr. Matt Kerr. This one is about hops, but I'm still going to read it. Consider the hop. It grows tall, fragrance of pine. Left out, ale would flop. Thank you, Matt. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. This episode is supported by Angry Orchard. I'm Jimmy Carboni, host of Beer Sessions Radio. And I'll be moderating an amazing virtual event with Angry Orchard and Heritage Radio Network on May 26th. We'll be celebrating the release of the new first-of-its-kind book, American Cider, A Modern Guide to a Historic Beverage. I'll be in conversations with the authors, Daniel Pucci and Craig Cavallo. Then we'll welcome Angry Orchard head cider maker, Ryan Burke, for myth-busting about this beverage and an interactive cider tasting. When you order a ticket, you'll also receive a copy of the book. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash cider. Plus, you'll find a link to purchase a hand-selected cider bundle from Angry Orchard so you can taste along with us. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash cider. This episode is brought to you by Honeycomb Credit. Heritage Radio Network listeners can learn more about the power of community capital by visiting honeycombcredit.com HRN. We all know that food businesses like yours are the backbone of your community. 
You make your neighborhood a more delicious place to be, and your customers are hungry for more. Food businesses across the country are working with Honeycomb to open new locations, buy equipment, and grow. You too can unlock fair growth capital by allowing your community to invest directly into your business. A crowdfunded loan from Honeycomb deepens your customer relationships and gives them a whole new way to engage with your business. You'll also get access to thousands of local investors in the Honeycomb network who are passionate about seeing food businesses succeed. Honeycomb is the community bank of the 21st century. Fair rates, flexible terms, and no prepayment penalties. Honeycomb has proven to be an invaluable growth tool for all kinds of businesses, from James Beard-nominated restaurants and upstart food trucks to organic farms and award-winning breweries. Best of all, with Honeycomb, you're paying back your neighbors, not big banks. To learn more about how Honeycomb Credit can help grow your business while building vibrant, financially empowered neighborhoods, visit honeycombcredit.com HRN. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Support us and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. We're talking with the authors of American Cider and two great cider people, Anna Leger of Eden and David Thornton of James Creek. Um, so we got uh, Craig and Dan, Eleanor and David. <laughs> There's so much going on in this book, American Cider, and so much that you, we could talk about. But um, I want to just define a couple terms because I, I'm a big cider fan. I feel like I've grown up with you guys the last 10 years with the different cider weeks in New York. Um, how it, there's some different terms that used to be thrown around. There was fine cider for a while or real cider, but David, you mentioned the harvest based ciders. Um, you want to talk a little bit about your, your process of making cider and then also tell us about, you know, some of the ciders that you have for sale. Certainly. Uh, harvest based ciders is a, is a term that, that I just quite frankly stole from Eleanor Leger, I think, and, uh, and <laughs> Sam Fitz maybe and Ancho, but I think it captures very well the idea that, um, uh, we we're harvesting apples. We're utilizing those apples in that season while they're. We want to wait for them to ripen on the tree as best we can, uh, and and we can. We we you know if if it were up to me, they just fall off the tree right into my hand. Uh, super ripe. I like to capture those ripe flavors in the cider. Uh, we like to process those apples uh, quickly, and and different apples get processed in different ways. But the idea is we're not storing these. Uh, for long periods of time, we're not freezing juice. We're not uh, buying bulk juice um, that that may have come from um, other vintages or other places uh, for the James Creek Cider House ciders. Uh, these are all state grown fruit. So, you know, when the harvest season is over, we, you know, that's all we make. When we sell out of the James Creek Cider House ciders, which we which we pretty much do every year, then they're gone. <laughs> so, so they they won't they won't be around all year long, and we can't just make more. Uh, that's what the harvest offered us. Uh, so, I think it's a it's a very valuable term because it distinguishes that we're using apples from a given uh, vintage year, if you will, uh, and and each year presents uh, different characteristics from those apples. Sometimes a wet year is different than a very hot, dry year, and the ciders come out differently because we don't add sugars and we're not adding. Uh, acids. Uh, we're not doing juice corrections. We're taking what nature hands us, and then we're blending them to make uh, the best cider we can make. Eleanor, what 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 do you think? 
um, yeah, I mean, that's, there, there is, a, um, and Jimmy, I appreciate the question and, and, you know, just shout out to you for, for all the involvement that you have had in cider over the years. I remember you hosting the very first cider tasting of the very first New York cider week. Um, so it's been a, it's been a journey and, and, you know, throughout that journey, I remember you encouraging us to say, you know, how can you find a term to help distinguish the kind of cider that David and I make from, you know, the, the more, um, industrial sort of beer approach, which has a lot of, um, you know, tend to be sweeter and have a lot of other flavors added to them. And I think there's this big, big distinction between ciders that are made from a wine point of view and ciders that are made from a more of a recipe, quick turnaround point of view. And the more that I thought about it, there are two key distinctions. One is that we, as David said, we press at harvest or, or very close to it once a year and whatever we make from that harvest, that's it for that year. Um, and the second thing is that just the difference in the length of, you know, once once we have juice, the, the time elapsed between juicing and when something actually goes into a package, um, which is very short for um, the beer style ciders and much longer for us, right? So I think our shortest time to package is maybe five months um, and our longest time to package, well, we did an ice cider that was aged for eight years in a barrel, um, but typically it's two years for the brute nature, two to three years for ice cider, um, and maybe seven to eight months for, you know, a, a straightforward harvest cider. I don't know. What do you think, David? Length of time to package. Uh, the French would call that élevage, right, Eleanor? I think it's a great distinction. Uh, yes, we mature these uh, much longer, so so they have uh, an opportunity to take on secondary characteristics uh, from maturation. That uh, and whether you're maturing surly or whether you're uh, maturing in oak or in stainless, these are these are some of the ways that we can influence our final product. But the bottom line is, maturation ends much uh, it lends much to the final product. Yeah, and for me, for me, what it lends is um, the development of fruit character. If, I just find if you're if if you know for those ciders that are even if they're from great apples or some of the same apples that I use, if it's a quick fermentation and quick carbonation and into a can, there just isn't the development of apple character, fruit character that you get with maturation. I feel like we're helping define this more and more. Um, I like this harv- harvest based cider. And we're going to talk more about that in the future. Um, Dan, some other things that you've you've learned from doing this book, you wanted to talk about climate change a little bit. So um, I, I think it was interesting, climate change is a very interesting, interesting thing in terms of the cider because it's putting a lot of pressure on orchards. Um, we're seeing that right now come out in California um, and how that's expressing itself, where the forest fires that are basically destroying the grape harvests out there year after year. So we've seen a, a new embracing of cider, of cider, of making cider from winemakers in California, which has been very interesting. Uh, the whole new class of people who are uh, producing cider and getting new consumer, getting established wineries producing cider at, at a very high quality level and getting new consumers uh, to buy into cider, which I think is a really great thing. In terms of making it more, uh, getting cider into more people's hands and getting it into more, as a more commonplace beverage, um, which is really interesting as a kind of a weird thing that's kind of just happening in California. But then there are other examples too. I think talking with David before and 
kind of his orchard there is, a, I think, a really interesting test case because it's, I would say, David's orchard is kind of a, uh, ex- would you say David's kind of an extreme, it's relatively, it's a relatively, like one of the extreme places to grow apples in the southeast. Would you say that would be a true thing? The it is a challenging environment because of the heat. Uh, that's that's for sure. And and as it gets hotter, uh, that becomes more challenging. We also have some uh, disease pressure, uh, especially fire blight, that can be difficult. Uh, but uh, in choosing the right varieties and in maintaining the orchard correctly, uh, the, those those changes can be surmounted. And sometimes uh, it affects the fruit in, in, a, in not such a good way. I have a tough time growing a Gravenstein that I think is, is worth anything. Uh, but uh, other times I think the fruit responds very, very well to it. And, and it, can, it definitely it attenuates the acidity. Uh, it raises the, the sugar content, which yields a higher, a slightly higher alcohol cider that's a little less inherently acidic. Um, and, uh, and sometimes I think it enhances tannins as well, tannin development as well. It's not unlike the, the same changes that grapes go through. Uh, you know, a, a Pinot Noir grown in Burgundy is going to be uh, less of a fruit bomb and more acidic perhaps than a Pinot Noir grown in Sonoma taking all comers. Uh, it, not that we can't see wonderful wines from both places, but the grape responds differently to the climate. I think the apples do too. And I think extrapolating from that is things that he's doing here now are going to be his challenges that David's facing currently right now. Today, our challenges other fruit growers are going to be challenging in the next few years from now. That in a decade from now, if, David, if David's figuring his shit out now here in North Carolina, um, well, it's going to be when his problems become problems, his problems of today become, become next, de- next decade's problems in places like Virginia or Adams County, Pennsylvania, Places like that, we're going to have experience on how to deal with those problems, and that we can surmount the like they said, we can surmount those challenges when when they come. Great, I'm going to jump to Craig. Um, Craig, just a quick question. So you you guys run Golden Russet Cafe up in the Hudson Valley. Yesterday, I saw. I'm just going to break this up for a minute. I, I saw a picture of a breakfast sandwich, and I said, "What side do you drink with it?" Uh-huh. And you said back a cold one. Yeah. So and now it, that you guys are running a cafe, what? how do you approach your cider program? Um, yeah, great question. I thought about how to answer that, too. I was thinking, good points. Um, I think, I mean, I, I like to drink cider whenever the whenever the urge, urge bites, and it bites often. But um, the ciders we carry, uh, you know, the program started small. Is You know, it, it takes a while to build up an inventory and to kind of um, – introduce ourselves to the community and and kind of give them an idea of 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 our goals and what we're doing and you know i I didn't want to open with just a a whole bunch of cider from all over and just kind of you know maybe overwhelm the consumer but we we just started small and started mostly local we're we're lucky enough to uh to be in in a region that that has has a long history of growing apples and making cider um so yeah we we started started with local producers we you know sunstrom cider uh, we got some things from Rose Hill, which is here in Red Hook, where Dan is, and I'm recording from. They're just a town north. Um, there's there's Treasury Cider down in Fishkill. We kind of started small, but uh, it's mostly it's also mostly just I deal direct with the cider maker, uh, and so you know it's an email, and then they might come personally deliver the cider, which is a real luxury for us. Uh, you know, I know everybody's busy, but it's really nice to have people excited for us to carry their cider and 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 show up with it. Um, 
there, there's some stuff like West Wind, Fabio over in Accord. He does mostly direct-to-consumer when he's opened in, in season, but we'll go get his cider. Uh, our, our community loves that. And then other stuff like Eden, uh, we're actually able to get through some wine distributors. Ancho um, cans, we get through a big beer distributor. So as things become available, we're, we're working with Williams Corner Distributor to get Troddenvale. It's actually based in, in Virginia. So um, I, I kind of wanted to land the, the local producers that, that were an email away to get. And now uh, that I'm, we're pretty happy with that selection and we want to expand. And that requires now dealing with third parties. So it's, there's a little more work involved, but uh, we're, we're happy to go the extra mile just to, to continue to provide the best cider to our, to our community. Oh, that's great. And then, and back to Dan, I'm going to change the subject again. So Dan, come off mute, please. Um, we're going to ask you about another region, Arizona. So who was the cider maker that you, you almost had on the show today from Arizona? Oh, Tierney from Sto- from Sto- Stoic Cider. Yeah, she had a pretty busy springtime schedule. She was not able to join us today. Um, but they're all, they're awesome. They're, they're right across the border, relatively cl- close by to our, our friends over in southwestern Colorado. Um, and they have kind of the similar, those similar issues. Those, those really um, like isolated. They're outside Prescott, so it's not quite as isolated as Colorado, but it's still pretty hot. Um, I think one of the interesting things she told us was that um, they have these like we have bad freeze, bad freezes here. I know Eleanor may or may not have snow on the ground right now, up where she is. Um, but talking talking to her in Arizona, she's like. Oh, like she's she grew up in North, in North in North Dakota, and she's like, oh, but my my mom and I put our gardens in approximately the same time in early May because of the frosts are, are are that bad, um, and that will and that will generally get frosted out the same the same like we have the same challenges there, so it's interesting we think of the Southwest as being hot and desert like, uh, and like a poor place not necessarily our coming from the Northeast not exactly our, where we think apples grow. But they have a really long tradition of growing apples there, um, which is v- very interesting. And, and and they produce some very cool fruit. Her her husband, Kate, has, actually has a PhD, and he did his research on um, genetic research on all these old apple varieties that are scattered across the national parks of uh, New Mexico and, and um, Arizona. And he found some really amazing varieties that, that kind of entered into that region. And he, like, trace it back based into like uh what was available through the stark brothers catalog we, we talk about that in the book like how stark brothers was very important to that region and uh they're a big nursery business out of out of st louis and how that had a huge impact onto uh the rest of the country you can see these, these kind of chains back and forth and um the orchard orchards there are really interesting we actually had a whole big section there about um uh like i cut out of the book about about new mexico stuff that we kind of abbreviated a little bit but it, there's a fascinating history there of growing orchards back to the spanish period uh which is super amazing and like the ascaras that's the name for it for the irrigation works so basically uh indigenous people irrigation systems that the spanish then rebuilt over and basically haven't been improved upon since then uh and they're still active today and they still use them for irrigating all the orchards and all the crops there which is fascinating Wow, there, there's really a lot going on in this book, and I'm 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 enjoying it. I'm doing it region by region. I, I'm not reading it cover to cover. I, I jumped to New England, and then I did Southeast. Um, Eleanor, you, you are you on the board of the cider some cider association? Because I I think you probably have a pretty good perspective on the different regions in the country, don't you? 
Well, I, I, I think Craig and, and Dan have the best perspective given all the research they've done. But yes, I, I am on the, and both David and I are on the American Cider Association Board of Directors. And then what, what's changed for you in, in, in regards to that? Just to give us like your, that snapshot of, of cider. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating organization. But A, the industry is so new and it's grown in sort of leaps and bounds and all invited all kinds of new participants. When I started making cider in 2007, we were there were 85 cideries in the U.S. and there are now almost 1,100, apparently. <laughs> and uh, um, so there's, yeah, there's just a ton of, of excitement and growth. And one of the things I really credit the, the founders of the association um, back in 2000, I don't know, 10 and 11, was their commitment to making it a broad tent organization and supporting cider in all its different forms. Um, and so, um, you know, we work really hard as a board to make sure that we're, um, you know, w- you know, visiting our, our representatives to, to make uh, cider easier and the regulatory burden and the tax burdens easier for both large and small ciders. We're really hopeful that sometime this year or really soon, um, those of us who are small producers who make more of the harvest-driven cider are actually going to be able to put the year of harvest on our labels, which we've been looking forward to for a long time. So, um, yeah, it's been uh, it's been fascinating. Yeah, it seems like you have more winemaking uh, techniques and winemaking terms like elevage are associated with your fine or harvest ciders. It makes sense to have a vintage year for sure. Um, Eleanor, how, how would you characterize this book as a uh, as what does this book mean to to your world of cider and and the, the other makers that you associate with? Yeah, it's it's a seminal book. It's different from every other book that's come before. I mean, Dan alluded to that a bit, but um, the fact that it goes in depth into the history of um, the production and regions, and it really ties it to the fact that apple, you know, cider comes from apples. It's an agricultural commodity. It's not beer. Um, it's much more akin to wine and the viewpoints and the perspectives and the um, research that's gone into this is very much more akin to, you know, some of the great wine books I've enjoyed over the years. So I'm, I'm super thrilled with it. Wow. Let's. Uh, I want to ask you guys to each ask a question of each other. If you have one, this is a good time to do it. Um, otherwise, I'll ask a couple questions. So, just to start, I'll start with Craig. So, Craig, um, you know, you're a writer. You're 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 loving cider. Um, think of one. I'm sure you have one in your mind because you you wrote the book. But one anecdote or a, a myth buster that that you figured out um, when you research the book that there was there's a couple things one um i I think it was like commonly thought that cider was consumed because water wasn't safe but in in the research that we did and we didn't you know cover every single bit of research that's out there but we didn't find any information that alluded to that um and, and so i can't kind of speak definitively about the truth to that but you know we didn't find anything that would suggest that. And especially in, in places in the country, like the Northeast where waterways uh, are so plentiful, it, it seems unlikely that, that the water would not be safe for drinking and that cider would be the choice. It sounds like a, a, a fun, a fun anecdote to kind of speak, uh, speak of as a truth, but I, I didn't find any to that, but, but I guess more specifically and, and culturally relevant is the idea that prohibition killed cider. Uh, it's such an aggravating thing to hear. 
and it's, you know, cider, cider was dead pretty much. It was already being uh, talked about with this like nostalgia sense in, in 1840. So, you know, 90 years before prohibition, um, cider was kind of already dead. And, and the idea that, that it killed apple diversity and, and any of the other myths that go with it is just a complete falsehood and, and kind of a misrepresentation of, of the nuance and what was happening agriculturally and from orchards uh, all over the country. Wow, that is pretty intense, man. <laughs> and what about for you, Dan? Some other myth, a myth buster? Or... Yeah, I, I think one interesting thing we read was has to do about, like Craig was saying, and I think the rise of temperance and kind of the idea that, um, like, cider was a little bit self-defeating because of the groups of people in the United States who were engaged in, in making cider um, were largely these subsistence people who had who moved who came to the United States prior to 1840, who were mostly, you know, Northern European, uh, who were the, who were basically the people who, uh, who also were making cider were also people who were mostly embraced the temperance as well. So it wasn't like it was a cell, like people, the similar groups of people were embracing both things. So when, as, as the country, as the country changed and more people came to the United States, the drinking culture changed as well. And when one when when the, that group of people abandoned drinking, and when they ended up drinking generations later, they they picked up on other people's drinking cultures, mostly from Central Europe or Southern Europe or Southern Europe, um, embraced wine and beer as alternative beverages that were already people were already consumed. There's already a market for it. So like when prohibition was repealed, there was a market. There are people who are who had recently consumed wine and beer recently as part of their, as part of their normal day to day. There was no one drinking cider as part of their normal day to day, except for, as David said, these small subsistence farms who nothing really changed there. But in terms of commercial, large scale production of things, like cider just wasn't part of it. So it never really came back after prohibition. And not that, like, not that, not that, not that it really changed. And I have a question for Eleanor and David on this thing too, which is, would be for me, what's fascinating in the last five years is that I think cider has changed a lot for the better. Uh, I think we've seen a lot more diversity in the marketplace now in terms of the products, what's out there. And this the, even the quality of products are getting much higher than they were a few years ago. And I want to talk about from you guys as, as, as part of the board and as part of a national perspective, like what's going to happen next? Like I'm really excited to see all of these uh, new orchards going on the ground. And like even five years ago, I'm out of labeling on, on bottles, transparency, Everything in the past was just like, oh, this is a blend of heirloom apples. What is a blend? Uh, it's a bunch of apples that I was able to get a hold of. And now it's we're seeing so much more uh, focus and attention on raw materials. And what's the next step? Like, how is this going to change now that we're getting all these new raw materials on, in the ground? I, I think that's a great question. It's hard It's hard for me to fathom, uh, you know, what, what precisely is coming next, because I'm not sure I fathom that we'd find ourselves here uh, this quickly. Um We've certainly seen uh, a dramatic rise in, in at least people's awareness of cider and cider's growth uh, as a beverage, but um, we're continuing to see, I think, an impressive rise in uh, harvest-based cider growth, so growth and sales of harvest-based ciders. So I, I suspect um, uh, 
there was a palpable energy at the at the U.S. Uh, sorry, at the ACA conference at CiderCon this year. And Dan, Craig, you might have remarked upon it, where people were saying, "Okay, who's growing? You know, let's say uh, Hughes crabs," and and people from a bunch of different regions started talking about their what how Hughes behaves in their region, and and I think we're going to start to see uh, the excitement over what really happens in different terroirs with certain staple apples. And I think we're also going to see uh, a greater embracing of the specific varieties that might grow that are unique to, to given uh, chunks of the country. And I, I think the book uh, pays great justice to this. I, I, of course, my wife and I are terrible apple geeks. We love the history of why this apple ended up in this place. And I think those stories are really well told in, in this narrative. Uh, so I'm hoping that we'll see more of that, more apple-driven, more terroir-driven flavors and uh, more distinctions. Uh, but I don't know. Eleanor, what do you think? Well, um, one of my um, secret goals for the Cider Association, it's not that secret, I've talked to Michelle about it a lot, is, is that uh, we will actually collect and publish statistics on harvest-driven ciders. <laughs> um, because right now it's impossible, you know, the data that's published and in the broad beverage world about cider is all from grocery store chain data and maybe some, you know, lower end restaurant chains. And so it doesn't measure our kind of cider at all. Um, and so it's hard to get people excited about a category when you can't point to any statistics about it. And I'm excited to figure out a way to do that. So um, in terms of what's next, I'm like measurement. <laughs> That's actually so true. Our cider is completely not it doesn't register on on anybody's scales. <laughs> it's 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 amazing. It's all being left out, and we're all really excited about this beverage. But it, yeah, like I said, all the statistics are, it's not it doesn't even measure anything. I mean, you I mean, you just I just want to say you know dealing with consumers and usually when when I say cider, I think that it's it's pretty cool that just in ten years that people know what hard cider is and they may like it. Many people will say I I I drink that. I don't like beer. You know, there's I'm at a at a normal consumer level. So I think we've got a long way to go. But I think definitely like the generation that's under 35 is probably used to cider. So, you know, we're we're probably looking at the next 10 years of of real huge uh, progress as long as everything stays the way it is. Um, one thing that's really cool about this whole book release, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna give you Dan another chance to ask another question or say something, but. I just want to give a shout out. There's a couple of events going on related to your book. I know you did something up in Vermont um, on May 26th at heritageradionetwork.org slash cider. There's a special live virtual event uh, celebrating the American Cider Book with Dan and Craig and also with uh, Ryan Burke of Angry Orchard uh, Innovations. Um, so that's pretty cool. You can buy the tickets to see the virtual event. You can also get some of the special ciders from Angry Orchard at heritageradionetwork.org slash cider. And uh, we've got some other things going on. Cider Feast New England in June, some fun things. Um, Dan, let's wrap this up. This is like a, one of these shows that this will be like 10 more shows. <laughs> I'm going to keep this book next to my bed and uh, keep thumbing through it. And just like I said, when I was a kid, uh, you know, every time I had a wine, I, I had a LaRousse Encyclopedia or a Hugh Johnson book. Every time I try a cider or travel, I'm going to take this book with me because I knew about Blue Bee Cider, but I had no idea where it was. And that's what I think is really cool about this book is that it's really giving me that sense of place 
which might be the next step towards establishing, you know, terroir and regions and stuff. Um, so thank you. You want to say anything else? Yeah, that's actually that's actually a perfect segue where I was going to say, uh, speaking of Bluebee, we're um, SatterCon, the ACA's conference next year is in Richmond. Uh, that's my plug for you, Eleanor. Um, and it's, it's going to be in Richmond next year. And Courtney from Bluebee and I are coordinating and figuring out how to do a, a single variety uh, tasting event every night, every night of the week there at, at her facility. So we can really start like uh, them before in New York with her as radio in the past. And then they've worked out really well and have been really fun ways to explore terroir and tasting differences. And it's great to kind of, I really excited to bring a bunch of varieties together to taste them and understand how Hughes tastes in California versus Montana versus North Carolina versus New York state. And like, that's going to be a really inter- interesting thing to explore and for taste and for me, but also then to share that experience of as many cider geeks as possible is going to be a really exciting possibility. Cause it's an opportunity that people have a lot of time to, to engage with. Cause like cider is still pretty regional and like most cider doesn't leave this local, most of this high quality harvest driven cider doesn't leave this local area. So um, we don't necessarily have that kind of cross country communication as much as we should. Yeah. I'll, I'll just add a, uh just how exciting it is to be to be able to to be a cider drinker now and, and we owe credit to people like Eleanor and David for for contributing to that um and, and just how much better cider is getting year after year as people are continuing to learn more and more and there's kind of just the it, there's no ceiling the sky's the limit sort of a thing which is a cliche to say but it's true and it's I think uh as long as people are coming to cider without expectations I think expectations can be prohibitive but is we're all drinking together and learning together. It's just kind of a really compelling time to be part of a category and, 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 you know, carry it forward together as a, as a community. Well, that's great. You guys really been, uh, it's just the touching the surface. And again, you got to check out, uh, if you're, wow, North Carolina cider, um, looking forward to trying some David at, uh, James Creek cider house. Can you actually go there? Yeah, you, we have a we have a pretty good sized tasting room and a and an area in the orchard that people can hang out in. And Jimmy, if you show up with a copy of Craig and Dan's book and it's well tattered, you get a free cider. So, what do you think? <laughs> That's a good one. Wow, this is a really great show. We've been talking about American cider, the book. Thanks so much for joining me, Dan, Craig, Eleanor, and David. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on Heritage Radio Network. Big thanks to our engineer Matt Patterson and producing intern Caroline Fox. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.